This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Bob Woodson Sr., founder and president of the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, which helps residents of low-income communities address local and national problems, including violence. CNE assists community and faith-based organizations with training, technical assistance, and connecting with support sources, while chronicling and interpreting their experiences to make recommendations for public policy. Bob is an author and social activist who has dedicated his life to helping low-income communities. His involvement with civil rights activism began in the 1960s when he coordinated national and local community development programs, and during the 1970s he directed the National Urban League's Administration of Justice Division and later served as a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Bob has received the MacArthur Fellowship, the Bradley Foundation Prize, and the Presidential Citizens Medal, and holds an honorary doctorate from Colorado Christian University and the University of Cincinnati. Bob, good to have you with us today. Pleased to be here. Did you have any experiences growing up that inspired your commitment to social activism? Yeah, I grew up in a really blue-collar black neighborhood in my native Philadelphia, uh, and uh, my dad died when I was seven, leaving my mother to raise five children on her own which meant she had to work very hard. And uh, we pretty much had to um, learn how to help ourselves a lot. And so I was blessed to cleave to a group of six fellas who um, we went around together and, and supported one another, and we are friends to this day. And so I gained an appreciation, and I dropped out of high school because they were a year older and I dropped out of high school um, because you can't grow up in an urban neighborhood unaffiliated. <laughs> yes. That's a nice word. Yes, um, yes, yes. And a, and, a, and a kaleidoscopic word, really. Absolutely. And so I went into the military and, uh, and, and sort of found myself there and uh, developed uh, some confidence in my ability to learn. Went to an elite airborne school and got out and... Um, my form of affirmative action was working eight, eight hours a day and then going to school full time on the GI Bill of Rights. And so in the process of earning my degree in math, I was working full time for three years at a juvenile jail uh, locked behind three doors with 65 young people, pretty much like myself. Uh, and so I developed a, a love and, and appreciation for service. And so I uh, then went to a school of social work and got involved in the civil rights movement. And, and from there, got very disappointed because low-income blacks uh, were not, uh, there was a kind of a bait-and-switch game where the conditions of poor blacks were used as the bait. And when remedies arrived, they only helped well-educated people like myself. So I left the civil rights movement and then began to work on behalf of low-income people of all races and took several. So that's kind of been my journey. And what community development programs did you help to establish and coordinate back then? 
what I what I did was um, I started uh, in the beginning where 16 young blacks were arrested and charged with riot uh, at a and I so I organized it and they were given stiff sentences so I organized the community to confront this injustice and after a year we were able to get these young people released and then I began to uh, develop programs that would mobilize low-income people to intervene in in violent conflicts domestic conflicts called the community assistance project in other words Half of all the police are killed as they intervene in domestic disputes. And so when a call went out, instead of the police responding, I had a neighbor that knew the very the contending parties respond. And as a result, we were able to reduce the amount of rest, the number of police uh, uh, deaths. And so that was kind of my pioneer effort, knowing that the strengths of communities can do indigenous community leaders can accomplish some uh, fascinating interventions if they're just given they have empowered. So from that, I began to look for solutions among the people suffering the problem. And how did you come to direct the National Urban League's Administration of Justice Division during the 70s? I was, uh, when I was working at a local program, I got the attention of the Unitarian Service Committee. So I went to work there for uh, two years, and I realized that uh, I was running national programs, the first black to do so. But I observed that this liberal national social service agency, 70 cents of all the dollar we raised was going to administration and fundraising and only 30% to programs. So I kind of challenged that practice uh, and um, got fired, challenged the president, got rehired, and then left him. I said, well, black liberals will be better than white liberals. So I went to the Urban League <laughs> and I found the same level of exploitation of the poor where grants were written uh, to help the poor with the majority of the money remaining in the hands of the providers. And so after five years of being frustrated there, I realized that it wasn't really a racial phenomena, but it was a class phenomena uh, and they were structural disincentives that prevent us from helping the poor. And so I was met my first conservative, uh, Peter Berger, who invited me to come to the American Enterprise Institute and, and write about the role of intermediary institutions in solving of problems. In other words, people on the right when they left when they see a group of poor people they see victims and people on the on the right see aliens uh, without neither side recognizes that we that there are powerful institutions that stand between the individual and government and those are the kind of institutions that peter called intermediary institutions or mediating structures but i just understood them as grassroots groups that um help out individuals in low-income communities when they are faced with a crisis. And you mentioned structural disincentives. So one would think that an organization uh, that's specifically geared uh, toward helping these people would have incentives rather than disincentives. Can you clarify that? Yeah, I mean, when, you, when you're when working in a, a, a structured situation, 
In other words, 70 cents, we've spent about $20 trillion in the last 50 years on programs that aid the poor. About 70 cents of every one of those dollars goes not to the poor, but those that serve poor people. They ask not which problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable. So that if you have a situation where we have created a commodity out of poor people, in other words, if you are a, a running a social work agency and you have 50 social workers and your budget is determined by the number of people that you serve, there are, that means that you have a perverse incentives to reducing your caseload. Hmm. So it, it, it creates a situation where even if you're well-intended, it causes good people to do bad things because the... You, you, you are oriented around the, dis, the disabilities of people and not you have no incentives under that system of making people healthy and whole. Now, most um, funders and foundations today, uh, they have specific requirements that uh, no more than 8 to 12 percent of the grant would go for administrative costs. So has that actually changed recently or is, is that a how foundations and funders uh, have evolved. Can you perhaps talk to that? Well, administrative administrative costs isn't the issue. It's your salary employees. Those are direct costs. Mm -hmm. So if I have a uh, a, a $400,000 budget and 60 to 70% of my budget comprised of paying salaries to professionals that deliver services to people, uh, then you can have a low overhead, but you, the fact is your whole direct uh, expenditures are going are, 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 are represent a perverse structure. Understood. And all of this activity from the 60s and 70s uh, and what you're talking about with structural disincentives and so many other uh, areas of inequality, uh, I assume that that directly led you to found the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise in 1981? It really did. I went to the, the conservative American Enterprise Institute where for the first time I had an opportunity as a as a practitioner to really go back and 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 put some distance between those and really study the 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 impact of the actions that I was a part of. So I was able to write a book called A Summons to Life where I chronicled the experience of uh, a couple in Philadelphia that who I called a social entrepreneur that took gang members into her home when their oldest son was a gang member. And from that experience, she set up a sanctuary and more and more young men moved in with them and they end up buying houses in the block. And, and so I was able to, as a detached researcher, write a book so I could better explain to people the, the policy implications for these very innovative practices. But uh, after having uh, uh, written two books about that, one called The Summons to Life, the second one uh, is called Youth Crime and Urban Policy, A View from the Inner City, where I actually went around the country and found uh, adults that have experience in transforming and redeeming hardened gang leaders and changing them from predators and and making them ambassadors of peace 
And so, but once I was able to write those books, I'm at a think tank and I wanted to take actions to, to expand on and help them. And, and of course I was hitting, you don't, you don't do anything at a think tank to help people. You just write about folks. Yes. So uh, to bridge that gap between practice and policy, I established a center for neighborhood enterprise so that uh, it, it was dedicated to going out like a Geiger counter in high crime, drug infested neighborhoods and finding out two types of healing agents, I call them, or social entrepreneurs. There were those uh, traditional anti-poverty programs only look for pathology. They go into a low income neighborhoods and they identify 70% of the people who are raising children that are dysfunctional. Well, we go to the 30% of the households where the children are being raised that are not dropping out of school or in jail and drugs to try to find out what is going on. How are these people able to achieve against the odds? And what is the, 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 the magic? What is it that, 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 in, that incentivizes them? And so there's where the learning occurs. So the center's whole mission is to build on the strength of these social entrepreneurs, these healing agents, and then try to figure out ways to expand what is happening among the 30% so we can begin to positively affect the 70% of people who are dysfunctional. And over the last 35 years, has the focus of your mission changed since you founded CNE? Not really. All I have done is... Uh, attempted to better understand I, uh, 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 how transformation occurs, under what circumstance does it occur, um, and also what are some useful ways to empower uh, these people and how to take some of what we have done successfully to scale. For instance, we're able to go in now some of the most violent public high sc uh, schools and because of our unique approach of hiring young adults that serve as moral mentors and character coaches to kids, we put them as full-time employees in schools. And as a result, we were able to go into some of the most violent high schools and reduce violence by 25% in three months. And we've been doing this for 10 years in the city of Milwaukee. We started with one school and now we're into 11, and we're into Racine, Wisconsin, uh, Dallas, Texas. So we have, our goal now is to, we've had it evaluated by Baylor University, uh, who can, that Baylor compared how our schools function against those without the program, and there are some pretty startling findings. The challenge that we face now is to take what works and try to take it to scale to every uh, school that needs it. And what other sorts of problems do you help residents of low-income neighborhoods address? Uh, I think the, the, the problems is that of, of getting some solutions is that we tend to generalize about the poor. Not everybody is poor for the same reason. You, ha I, you have what I've considered four categories of poor people. You got those that are just broke. These are the people whose character's intact. 
uh, and they're morally uh, in intact, and they use the system as it was intended, as a temporary ambulance service and not a transportation system. You got category two of people whose character's intact, but they face disincentives for working or marrying, and so they they do, they run the numbers and then they stay dependent. Is that because of government help and funding? Government uh, uh, perverse incentives. Right, right. Uh, that they place. If I take a raise on this job, I can lose child care or health benefits. And so they stay. Um, and then category three are people who are physically and mentally disabled. We have to find a way of care for them. But category four is the one that concerns most of it. These are the people that are filling the welfare roles, a chronic welfare dependents, uh, drug, drug addicts, prostitutes. They're uh, violence, they're engaging in self-destructive activity, giving money to them or training programs, you serving as an enabler. So the, our groups at the center all concentrate almost exclusively on helping to transform people in category four. And along those lines, you've worked with more than 2,600 leaders in 39 states. So specifically, what type of training and technical assistance does CNE provide to community and faith-based organizations? The reason that we use the word enterprise in our name is because we believe that the same principles that operate in our market economy should operate in our social economy. In our market economy, um, we only 3% of our people are entrepreneurs and they generate 70% of the jobs. Well, I think that this, uh, only a small percentage of people in high crime, low income neighborhoods uh, have devised creative ways uh, to solve those problems. The challenge is how do we incentivize them? In our market economy, a venture capitalist finds a, an honest entrepreneur and applies not only money, capital, but also training and expertise uh, because entrepreneurs tend to be very poor bookkeepers. And it's the same in the social economy. A lot of the groups that are very effective in transforming uh, people from drug addiction and rescuing them from self-destructive behavior tend to be very poor managers. So what the center does is we go in and we see that uh, a small nonprofit organization has been successful in reaching 50 young people but they're not fundable because they don't have good management uh, structure. So we will go in and train them on how to set up a board of directors, how to manage money, how to hire a bookkeeper, how to... And as a consequence of our training, we then introduce them to people that are sources of financial support. And as a result, uh, within two years, they're now serving 200 young people and they have audits, uh, and and so when we what we leave behind is a healthy, functioning non not for profit. Uh, that's typical of what we've done. And the incentive aspect is absolutely huge. So, do you find that when people say in this fourth category are presented with incentives and means to be able to uh, work through their difficulties, that they are in fact eager to to embrace them? They really are, but it requires, it really requires somebody reaching them 
who perhaps has suffered the same maladies or, or, or challenges that they have. In other words, people are more inclined to improve when you show them victories that are possible, rather than just telling them and reminding them of injuries to be avoided. So what we tend to do is we will take someone who was a, re, a recovered drug addict, and then they witness to people who are on drugs, uh, and, and they commit in a trust, to a trusting relationship. Uh, and so often the transformation occurs by some, the person is led by a witness, um, and that's the foundation of how we were able to bring about some dramatic uh, rescues in these communities. It's fascinating. I took Congressman Paul Ryan to a program uh, that's been in existence for 40 years, started by my friend, Pastor Freddy Garcia, Outcry in the Barrio. And he saw hundreds of people that were sleeping under bridges with tattoos all over their arms. Now they are in recovery for six months, a year, two years. And uh, it, it was just phenomenal for him and others to witness uh, these, uh, these transformations and, and, and redemptive practices. Yeah, and they truly are transformations when you uh, see them in practice. And thinking about organizations like CNE, uh, I'm thinking, uh, how are value-generating and faith-based initiatives uniquely qualified uh, to tackle problems of poverty related to perhaps behavior and life choices? They, they, they really are, are qualified because, again, they're down in the trenches. Uh, it's, they, they witness to people. They're patient with people. They run to people that everyone else runs away from. Um, they have the, the people who serve this population don't do it for the life of a program. So their presence in the lives of people in distress is not related to some program category. The people are not uh, made to feel as if they're a client. And part of the process of restoration and transformation is reciprocity, that most programs that address poverty treat the poor as if they're clients. When you're constantly in a position of always receiving something from someone, after a while you despise not only the gift but the gift giver. So fundamental to transformation is helping someone to be a helper to someone else. Which also gets back to incentives, doesn't it? Yes, it is the incentives are not financial, but it's an opportunity to feel important to feel as if your life is worth something. There is a thing called spiritual poverty. A friend of mine named Richard Watts wrote a book that's worth reading. It's called Fables of Fortune, What Rich People Have That You Don't Want. And Richard in that book talks about the, the, the horrible uh, tragedies that are going on among some of the super wealthy that wealthy people tend to believe because they're wealthy, they don't need transformation. And poor people believe that unless they have money, they can't be transformed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's wonderful that, uh, that CNE is in a position to bridge that gap, surely. 
It really is, but um, it's what I've tried to say to people. It must be horrible to be rich and spiritually empty. And that's why you've got kids in Palo Alto, California, that are, they call them suicide clusters. They're dying in record numbers, jumping in front of trains. And that's because they, they are just sold on this notion that in order to live an effective life, you've got to pursue secular success. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Robert Woodson, Founder and President of the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise. And uh, share with our listeners, Bob, the, uh, what the Violence-Free Zone is, what that initiative entails, uh, and what perhaps what results you've seen because of it. The Violence-Free Zone, uh, we started with... Um, and I had been doing, because of my experience with Sister Fatah in Philadelphia that I referenced earlier about the woman that started this gang intervention program, um, I was training five young men who were ex-offenders that had the trust of the, of the police, the courts, and also the uh, young kids, teenagers. And so I was training them in my intervention uh, approach and I said, but you need to apply it in a community so that we can measure your results. And then a week later, a 12-year-old boy named Daryl Hall was murdered in an area called Benning Terrace out in southeast Washington. There were 53 murders in a five-square block area in two years. Even the police were afraid to go in there. So I directed these guys and said, why don't you go in there, identify the leaders, and bring them to my office downtown. <laughs> so we got two separate vans and they brought 16 of these young men to my office downtown because they were trusted the police couldn't even tell what the leadership was and I had a meal from them because Sister Fatah taught me that kids will fight when they're drinking but never when they're eating together <laughs> yes continue and yeah. so we they said to us no one ever asked us to be peaceful Long story short, after two, two or three negotiating sessions, oh, incidentally, we searched them. They had bulletproof vests on. I tell you, it's important to be spirit-filled, but not crazy. <laughs> and so, um, but we gained their trust, and as a result, they shook hands, and they went out into the community, this time hired by the housing authority, uh, the leader of one faction was a foreman and the other one also, and we switched them up 
fellas from the avenue worked in the circle, and the press showed them all in these yellow rubber uniforms removing graffiti. And, and so as a result of this intervention, there was not a single gang-related murder in 12 years in that community as a result of this peace pact. And these programs would directly influence public policy, wouldn't they? Well, we would hope that they would. But what happens is that we then um, refine that intervention. And so our violence-free zone was based upon the principles that we learned from that successful intervention. And that is, you, if, you, if you have a school of 1,000 kids, they are controlled by 10%. And that 10% by 10%. So if you go in and you target 10% of the troublemakers by hiring young adults who know how to identify them and relate to them, by changing and transforming that 10%, you can change an entire community. And can, can you, in fact, change uh, law and public policy? What's happening, unfortunately, yes, you can, but uh, in fact, unfortunately, around the country, uh, even though we have these examples, uh, law enforcement and policymakers, the mayors, still rely on shot detectors, police. Um, they, they, they tend to really ignore these kind of interventions. And so our biggest struggle is convincing people that uh, that our our intervention is effective, and and so the biggest barrier we face is really elitism because of people both left and right of center when it comes to the social economy really believe that only people who are professionally certified are qualified to help poor people. Only in our social economy is certification synonymous with qualification. In our market economy, we don't care whether Bill Gates has a degree in computer science. We just want to know, does he produce something that we need? Or whether Steve Jobs has a college education. But in our social economy, we don't care what you produce. We just want to make sure you're certified to do it. Uh, understood. And do young people uh, embrace that? Do they buy into that effectively? What, the professionalism? No, the, uh, the, the fact that they can, in fact, make a difference. Oh, yeah, they yeah. do. The young people do buy into the, the, to, to the fact. And, and that's how I can, I can take you to principals and superintendents and police will tell you that some of the schools used to have a, a riots in their police calls. Now they are among the most peaceful schools as a result of our intervention. Even though we have produced interventions that have measurable results, we don't have people knocking on our doors saying to us, bring it into this community. And along the lines of public policy, you brought together task forces of grassroots groups to advise the 104th Congress on welfare reform. What did this involve? What this has involved is that I, I brought my, when uh, the leadership in, 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 in Congress said, said to me, Bob, we want to change the welfare laws. Can you give us 
um, some insights from grassroots leaders. So I assembled a task force of grassroots leaders from Appalachia, uh, Hispanic groups, blacks, whites. I brought them together for three or four days and we discussed what are the rules should, many of them were former welfare recipients. So the whole notion that two years and you're off came from us, from grassroots leaders. Uh, this whole notion that, that we should um, provide direct, uh, allow public housing residents to control their budgets so that they can hire the company that picks up trash, that they can operate their own laundry room, that they can um, collect the rents, that they can hold residents accountable so we, we had that as a model, and, and it made history in that we pushed through seven amendments to the National Housing Act, thanks to the late Congressman Jack Kemp. Uh, we brought together, um, but we, all, we did this by bringing resident leaders together. We had Coopers and Librand, a big eight accounting firm, come in and actually run the numbers on resident-managed public housing and they compared it to public housing run by a housing authority. And that's why we were able to get seven amendments to the Housing Act passed in the mid 80s with a 93 to zero in the Senate and 430 to zero in the House. And Ronald Reagan signed it into law flanked by myself and six resident leaders. And are politicians generally receptive to these initiatives? You know, it's a good question. Um, we, are, we are so steeped in this whole notion of professionalism. It's elitism that really is our biggest barrier. It's not racism, it's elitism. This whole notion that people who haven't, do not have college degrees people that are untutored or unwise and therefore um, unavailable to affect public policy. We have a tremendous uh, elitism going on in the think tanks that the very fact that the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation and the Brookings Institute can all come together as experts on on, on formulation of public policies toward the poor. And they can do this and never talk to one poor person. And given uh, what you mentioned about elitism and not racism, why is it that racism is so pervasive, that word, that term, and all it means is so pervasive across society and across countries? And, I just think it and, is and, one, and, and elitism is, is actually not. It's not talked about generally. Well, I just think that we have the civil rights movement that I've played a pr proud part in has morphed into a race grievance industry. And I think that um, the very fact that it's being used to avoid pr any responsibility, how... In other words, the great promise of the Civil Rights Movement was the Voting Rights Act. If you put blacks into elected office, then they will run these governments to the benefit, to improve benefits to all blacks. 
Yet when you look at cities like Detroit, Baltimore, Newark, Trenton, all of these cities have been run by black politicians for the past 40 years and conditions are worse than they were before the civil rights movement. So the only way that they can justify why they have failed is to then point to institutional racism, whatever that means. I call institutional racism the embrace of white supremacy. It's white supremacy in dark face. If somebody believes that somehow white America can compel black people to fail their own people and institutions run by them, that's white supremacy. And are you optimistic about um, these initiatives going forward actually making uh, tangible dents in, in such uh, problems? I am optimistic because it's obvious to everybody that what we have done up to now has not worked. When you look at rioting in Baltimore, you cannot label that race because all of the officials institution, it's really class. So I just think, and now the police issue is trying to, they're trying to insert police as a, uh, a proxy for race so that they can avoid any personal responsibility, these officials. But I'm optimistic because things are so bad that people are desperate for solutions. And I think that the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise within the next 30 days, um, uh, we have, we're going to be recruiting a powerful ally. And I think with this new ally of ours, we'll be able to, to really um, make an impact. And what advice would you offer to young people uh, who are really moved by the work of CNE and other uh, organizations? Uh, what advice would you would you give them uh, in founding their own initiatives and their own nonprofits? I think first of all, I think they need to understand that they need to be much more objective and understand that that it is the victim may have knocked you down, but the victim them has to get up and they must understand that they shouldn't be swept away by emotional appeals of social injustice and they should be seeking out people uh, who are quietly offering real remedies in their communities not those who are shaking their hands in anger uh, so they just need to look for the quiet heroes and we have a series on our website called a comeback series that they should go on and see those. If you want, uh, if you want to be inspired, they should look for people who are inspiring, not people who are protesting. And obviously you put that forth when you speak to young people uh, looking to, in fact, make a difference. I really do. I, I talk to them about visions that are possible. Think about this when there is a deep thirst on the part of the American public to support virtue in action, the very fact that last year, a 46-year-old homeless man in, in Boston 
found a knapsack with about $40,000 and turned it into the police. And then someone posted his name um, and, and, and tried to raise money. They raised $93,000 in two days. And this happened on at least four occasions with the marathon man in Detroit, the 18-year-old in the Dairy Queen in Minnesota, uh, so the fact is that there's such an outpouring of support for virtue in action says to me that there is a deep thirst on the part of the American public to support such virtue. And that's why I'm optimistic. Mm, that's great to hear, Bob. And um, share for our uh, listeners what the future holds for CNE. What would you ideally like to happen? You mentioned, like you mentioned the ally next month. Yeah. The models that we have... Uh, how even the most predatory young people have been rescued, that we should be looking for strength. There are at least 20 young adults. I'll give you an example of what I'm optimistic. There was two young ladies who all, for their entire high school career, were forced to live in their mother's car and also in homeless shelters. And they used to study by the light of their mother's cell phone one graduated valedictorian and a sister graduated salutedictorian uh, and went on to Spelman College. Well, we need to look for people who are achieving against the odds like that. They are the real heroes. They are the people with powerful messages that we need to be listening to. And what often happens, don't you find, is that people just need to be aware uh, of these testimonies and these uh, stories uh, to offer their support, not just financial, but time and, and other resources, right? Right. That's what the center is going to be concentrating on. We are recruiting some powerful allies that have money, that have access to the media, and they have been walking with us for a year or so, and they really want appreciate what we're trying to do and so I really think that we are uh, the culture. We really got to change the culture. And I know that cultural change is possible. It happened before. It happened not now. It's going to happen now. Uh, yeah, I'm really motivated by what Pope Francis said. He said, if you want to, if you want to know about Mary, ask the theologian. If you want to know how to love Mary, ask the people. Yes. Which is, which is universal, isn't it? Yes, and he also said that, that a shepherd should have the odor of sheep, hmm. which Be means that we should look for leadership that really represents the people, not people who are riding around you know, in fancy cars, on television, purporting to be leaders, but we should look for people that are or actually spend their time among the people that they serve, like sure. the shepherd does. Sure, and these are leaders who are literally in the field. In the field. Yeah. And mm. the qualities that make them effective also makes them invisible. Mm. That they're not looking for recognition or headlines. You've got to find them because they're not looking for you. Mm. Well, Bob, on that note of optimism, we thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you.
The best way to reach Bob and to support the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise is through cneonline.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.